our final night for the series on Ezra. We're going to take a look at what made the people of Judah who built the second temple so receptive to the Word of God. We see that they responded to the first call, which as best we can tell was done by the Spirit of God to their spirits, and they made the trip from Babylon, leaving all the things that they had built in Babylon to come to a place that for many of them was unknown. Then they received a word from the prophets of God who spoke to them about restarting the work that they had stopped and they responded to that. And then here in the end we have that Ezra comes and he teaches them from the word of God and they see the error of their ways and they respond to that. Three different ways God seems to have spoken to them and they responded in each one. <clears throat> so what made them so quick to respond and in times past they have been so slow to respond? That's the thing we want to take a look at. It took me a little while to come up with a theme for tonight, looking at all the numbers and the names and things that were going on here in the final chapter. But once I saw this theme, and we're actually going to be able to tie a lot of things from Sunday in on this, uh, certainly got me more excited about Ezra chapter 10. Let's uh, start off here in verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, and according to those who know the Hebrew better than me, that is a constant bowing down that he had done and not just a one-time bowing down. A very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now the hope that he seems to be looking at is likely the hand of God upon the people as he sees their response to the uh, exhortation that Ezra had given them. It's You can know that judgment of God can come, but when you hear the word of God preached, the word of God spoken, and you see how much of the people respond, that to him is, is showing there's a hand of God here. And I would certainly agree with that, that that would be showing a move of the Spirit, a move of God upon the people. I wrote in your outline that feelings of brokenness will not yield the same fruit as actions of repentance. So they may have had feelings of brokenness, but they also had actions of repentance and that's what they did when they all came and they gathered together. Now it is Shechaniah who gives voice to the solution. It is not Ezra. Ezra preaches the word. Ezra is the one who's, who says this is what the word of God has said. This is what it says that we should not do. But yet we have done it. So he does not propose the solution. It is Shechaniah who will be, be doing this. And he says, that, and you have taken pagan wives from the people, yet now there is hope in Israel. Let's take a look at what his solution is. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So his idea is, all right, all you guys that have taken foreign wives, uh, let's put them away. Take away all the children that were born Let's put them away. That's pretty radical uh, movement. And maybe Ezra knew this was what had to happen, but being an outsider, he didn't know if it was his place to do it, but someone from the community maybe has a, a better shot at doing it. It may be that Ezra was just too overcome with grief, because we do see that a lot with him, that he just was not about to step into that, but Shechaniah is, is one who does. But I would probably side on the Side that Ezra thought it better coming from one of the ones in the community, especially since it's going to be such a harsh and radical move. So Shechaniah puts this forth. Verse 4, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all the Israel swear an oath 
that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath, and Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, and the son of Elishab. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Now Shechaniah in verse 4 puts this upon them. He says, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. He seems to be distancing himself from responsibility in the matter, which would seem to indicate that Shechaniah is not guilty of taking a foreign wife. That's not a sin that you can really cover up. People would know whether you had a foreign wife or not. So he's able to stand up there and say, I have not. When we go through the list of people that were guilty, there is a name of one that carries the same name as his father. I believe that's in verse 21. And so some feel that maybe his father was, uh, maybe even some other relatives were, but he was not. So Ezra goes off into a fast, and he has a fast that is a complete fast. It's both food and water. You don't see that fast too often in the Word of God. You do see it some. Most times it's a fast of certain things. It might be just a fast of food while they're drinking water. But Ezra takes on a fast that is complete no food and no water. Verse 9. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, they already know that. That's why they're gathered there. But he's just going over it again, I guess. But what is interesting to note is they have all gathered. Somehow they got all the people that were guilty of this together. They made the trip to Jerusalem from wherever it was they were. They're not, they don't inhabit the entire land of Israel. So they're not coming from the northern tribe areas. But they are coming from the territory that is considered Judah and Benjamin. So there is still a trip to go. They make the trip in the rain. Apparently, it is the rainy season, and they made it in heavy rain, and then they stood outside in the heavy rain. Now, you all have heard me talk about rain and running, and it's a whole different matter. I love putting on the running stuff and going out in the rain and getting soaked. I do not like having regular clothes on and getting soaked in the rain. It's just a whole different matter. It's just, it's, it's a different thing. You're, you're not prepared to get wet. And then when those clothes, clothes get wet, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just not good. Now, sometimes we've had to. We've uh, had to do some work sometimes. It's out in the rain. And when you do that, you know, you put on some kind of a raincoat that's going to help out a little bit. But you just know you're going to get wet. And it's different when you set your mind to it. I'm just going to get wet. I don't know how many of these people set their mind to getting wet in here. But they came, whatever clothes that they had. And they were, they were soaked. And they're standing outside in the rain. They didn't have a place for all the people to be under covering. So they're in the rain and they're going through all this. It's heavy rain. So it's got to be hard to hear. They don't have a PA system. So understand the conditions that they are under. They're under some extreme conditions. They have the men, the women, and the children gathered in the heavy rain to hear what we're going to do. So they said, let's gather in three days. And in three days, they got all together and they they made it here. Benjamin is even mentioned. This is the one of the few times here we've had Benjamin listed. So not only is the Spirit of God responding, moving on the people, but the people are responding to the Spirit of God. I've heard uh, an account that was told that occurred in March of 1859. There was a beginning of a great move of God and it would bring more than one million souls to conversion in Great Britain. And some unordained men with a passion for revival 
preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Ahog, Ahog Hill in Northern Ireland. Ireland. There was such a large crowd at the meeting that they had to dismiss the meeting out of fear of the balconies would collapse because there were so many people putting so much weight on there. So they took the meeting to the street right outside the church. And in the freezing rain, James McQuilkin preached to 3,000 people with many of the listeners falling to their knees in the wet and muddy street because they were so moved by the conviction of sin under the preaching of these laymen. That's kind of a similar thing going on that we have here. And when the Spirit of God moves this way and people are involved in sin, then they will uh, make such drastic and uh, uncomfortable repentance as they did here. Now, a move of God without being carried to completion, that's really a move without any fruit. But they not only got it started, they not only got it to the middle, but they also got it all the way to the end. Verse 11, Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples in the land and from the pagan wives. So basically he's saying, um, we want you to confess and we want you to separate. We need you to repent and we need you to act on that repentance. Spurgeon says this, it was an interesting quote, so kind of a longer quote. Let me read this for you. Perhaps you have the notion that repentance is a thing that happens at the commencement of the spiritual life. It has to be got through as one undergoes a certain operation. And there is an end of it. If so, you are greatly mistaken. Repentance lives as long as faith. Towards faith, I might almost call it a Siamese twin. We shall need to believe and to repent as long as we ever live. That was Spurgeon. Repentance is not something that we start our walk with God and then it's over. It keeps going. I put this in your outline for you. Repentance can be us moving forward, not just a return from a fall. Many times we think of repentance as, well, I have fallen, like the people here, they have fallen, and repentance brings us to a place where we're, we're restored back to where we were. But that's not all that repentance does. Sometimes the Spirit of God shows us things as we grow and mature. And mature. It shows us, he shows us things that we are doing outside of the will of God. Some of those things we didn't know about and some of those things we just couldn't comprehend. We couldn't understand it. We didn't have the spiritual maturity. We didn't have the spiritual understanding. We didn't know enough about the Bible for God to give us the revelation on it. And as we said before, uh, revelation is progressive. As we grow in that progression, God can say, all right, now this thing over here, this is outside of my will. You want to take care of that. I didn't know that before, but he brings me to that place now. So this is why repentance can be an ongoing thing in our spiritual life, and it does not have to involve backsliding. It does not mean you went backwards. It means, uh, in, a, in a good, healthy relationship, it means you're moving forward. It means you're growing, and God is able to show you some things. See this thing over here? That's outside of my will. I need you to clean that up, fix that up. Get rid of that. Cut that off. Whatever it might be. Oh, Father, I had no idea. I will take care of that immediately. And we set out to take care of it. That's an area where we're growing. That's a a thing that was holding us back, but I didn't know it was holding me back because I didn't even know about it. But now that I know, and God can uh, prune that from me, now we can make some better progress than we were doing before. Verse 12. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. Wow. You got all the assembly saying, All right, we're going to put our foreign wives away. We're going to even send the children away. We must do this. That is something. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days. For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand 
And let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Ahashel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shephathai, the Levite, gave them support. Now it is amazing that they all wanted to go along with this. But they do say we need more time. We can't handle this in a couple of days. This is a big matter. We're going to, what we do is we have everybody here. We're going to schedule some time that we can spend with each person. And so they may have done it right there. And they said, all right, you come on next week, Monday. You come next week, Tuesday, whatever it might be. They set up a, a time. And so everybody knew when they were to come. And it was spread out over a longer period of time because it was not going to be done in one or two days. Now, there are four in opposition to the plan. We are not told why. I have no idea why they were in opposition. It could be they saw the decision as too harsh. And they just didn't want to go along with it because it was too harsh. Maybe they wanted to preserve some of the families. Maybe some of their relatives were involved in this sin. And they wanted to preserve some of those that were there. Maybe they just wanted to preserve families over together. Maybe they just, they, they weren't related to them, but they just said, you know, we don't want to see that broken up. Look at the, the situation here and sending them back on home. We just don't agree with that. Don't know. It is also possible that they thought there was no need for a delay. We need to take care of this right now. And so we're not told. We're not told if they thought it was too harsh. We're not told if they were sympathetic. We're not told if, uh, they just, we're just, we're not told, so we're left to assume, but out of a whole group, you got two people who oppose and two people who support the two people that oppose. But we're just not told exactly what that was. Go on with verse 16. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of their father's household, were set apart by the father's household, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month. To examine the matter. They sat down on the first day of the tenth month. They started in the ninth month. Just a couple weeks before. That's when they said. Let us make a schedule up. Let's get this thing going. So on the first day of the tenth month. They begin this. By the first day of the first month. They finished. So that means they go up until the first day of the eleventh month. They go up until the first day of the twelfth month. And then they go up to the first day of the first month. So that's three months. Three months to take care of the people that were involved. What they did was they, they scheduled, and we don't know how many they scheduled. We know in the end, if we, we do the count, the people who do the counting looked at the list that is in there, and they came up with 114. I did not bother to waste my time and count them again. That somewhere around that area uh, gives us an idea of what's there but probably somewhere around 114 people were, were guilty. Now, we don't know that 114 out of all Israel are the guilty ones. What we do know is that 114 sent their wives home. It is possible that there were many more people who had taken pagan wives, but that the uh, wives decided to uh, forsake their gods forsake their people and enter into a covenant with Jehovah. That is very possible. And the likelihood of that is because they did not just handle this in a short time. They took three months to get this done. Three months to go over all those people, which means they brought them in a few at a time, as they were saying, and they interviewed them. They talked with them. What is there to talk about? If the end decision is you married a foreign wife, the foreign wife goes home. If that's the decision, you don't really need to talk a whole lot. But they had an interview. They spent some time with them. It would seem they want to find out, is this foreign wife, and maybe in some cases the foreign husband, because we know that uh, some of that, that occurred as well, have they truly repented of their old ways? Have they forsaken their idols? And have they entered into a covenant with Jehovah? So they probably want to talk with them about this and determine, is this where they are? And if they determined that they said 
we don't want to go home. We don't want to leave our family. We want to forsake our gods and we want to stay here in the land of Judah. Well, that would be acceptable with God as long as you're going to forsake the other gods and you want to serve him. He's not going to send you away. So this is probably why it took three months. They spent some time to interview. It was the rainy season. They don't want to do this outside. So they did it the way they can do in the covering. Small numbers at a time. They all came in. They sat in the covering. We interviewed. We talked with them. They may have had some people. They talked with the woman. We'll just say the wives here because that's probably what most of the cases were. They talked with the wife and they determined, you know what? She has really decided to uh, make a decision for God. She's like uh, Ruth had made a decision to, to serve God. She's like uh, Rahab made a decision to serve God. And we see it to be very, very genuine. And so we're going to say this one's okay. And then they interview another one. Maybe they were saying, I'm going to forsake, but they didn't really mean it. And then during the interview process, they kind of, you know what? This is that's just not genuine. And they may have rejected that one. And maybe they had some who came out there and said, we are not forsaking our gods. We are going to continue to serve them to worship them, which means the whole time that all this has been going on, this is what they have been doing. So when we get to the end of it, we're given the list of 114 people who were guilty, whose wives were sent home. Let's go over there to that, to that list. Verse 18. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jezedek, and his brothers, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gadaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. <clears throat> now that's significant when it tells you what kind of an offering is brought. Because there are two types of trespass offerings in the law. There is one that shows they sinned with the knowledge that it was sin and one where they sinned in ignorance. If you sinned in ignorance, you would bring a trespass offering that was a goat. If you sinned with knowledge, you would bring a trespass knowledge or trespass offering of a ram. So when they bring a ram, they are saying, we knew this to be wrong, and we did it anyway. So that, that's a part that can kind of be blind to you. Unless you do the uh, corresponding research in the law and see where, where that is. But uh, since it doesn't jump out in the page, may not be clear. Verse 20, also of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Hiram, Mishael, Elijah, Shemaiah, and Jehiel, and Uzziah. So Jehiel is possible, that is the Jehiel that is mentioned with Shechaniah. It is possible that Shechaniah's relatives were involved, but we're not really given all the specifics to help us to understand that. Now, we could spend time going over all the names that are in here, but seeing as you don't know any of them, and there is actually um, uh, a, a couple of uh, Je Jehiels that are in here. Uh, one is mentioned of the son of Elam, and that is coming down further here in verse 26, but... Whatever the case, we have a number of them. Most of us don't know. But this is not the way you would want to get your name found in the greatest book of all time. There are much better ways to have your name mentioned in the book. This is probably not the way that you would want to. Verse 44, bring your attention down there. All these had taken pagan wives. So these are the names of guilty people. And some of them had wives by whom they had children. So not all had had children, but some did. And so it's already been stated that if the woman was going to be sent home, then the child was going to go home with her. Now, today we know that a lot of times in the courts of law, the children, if divorce proceedings, the children often go to the mom. That is generally where the courts generally side with these things. Uh, maybe not always, but a lot of times back there in those days, it was still the same way. If there was divorce, this would come out. Now, you know that God hates divorce, and you wonder why is God on the side of having divorce go on? Well, God hates sin. But now you've got one sin where they have married someone they're not supposed to marry and brought in false worship, and this person will not reject it. And then you have divorce. Now, the best scenario 
is that they wouldn't have married them in the first place. If they just would have been obedient, we wouldn't have this problem. But because of their disobedience, now God has to decide between these two different things. And so uh, we saw other cases with that too. Jehoshaphat, of course, gave God a really uh, bad time on this thing when he took the blessed line and had them marry into Ahab's line, who was the cursed line. God said, you're going to wipe out all your descendants. Boy, was that ever a, <laughs> a nasty thing to, to have done. Uh, so there are times that people down here on earth, we put God into a very bad situation where he now has to decide between one or another. Either we say, all right, let's go ahead with these marriages and keep them going on, or we break them up and divorce them. Best thing to do is just obey God outright. Since you didn't, now we have to go on with something else. So a lot of times people want to blame God for their problems. More than likely it's because down the, somewhere before you did not obey something that God had said. Because you didn't obey, now we are stuck with these particular situations. Now from here, we have no account of Ezra for 13 years until he appears again in Nehemiah. I don't know if he had returned back home because the king did seem to expect him to come back home at some point. Maybe he returned back home and then came back again. We don't know. He may have stayed there for the whole time. We're not told anything. Ezra kind of has disappeared. But his passion all through this seems to stay the same. It is to transform the people of God by bringing them to the word and teaching them its principles. We may not see Ezra for a while, but when we do see him, he still has the same passion. He wants to bring people to the Word of God, teach them the Word of God, and instill in them the same passion for obedience to God that he has. And that's what he kept, kept on going. So here's our question. How did these people get to this place where in three different occasions over the book of Ezra, we see them respond very quickly to the things of God, to the way God spoke it, we saw that there's three different methods to use. One by His Spirit, one by His prophets, and one by the teaching of His Word. And they responded to each one. And they were not, none of them were easy. One making a trip, leaving everything that you got to make a trip over the wilderness, come to Jerusalem and begin the build process. Another, they had given in to the fear and had stopped working on the temple. And the prophet came and exhorted them to get started again. And so they did. And they overcame all that. And we saw some of the opposition they still received even when they restarted and were obedient to God. And then here in this last one as they respond to the word being taught. Now when they first responded and they came to Jerusalem, we saw that there was persecution. They received some persecution. First the people wanted to join in with them and they said, no, that's not going to happen. And then those same people who said, we want to help you, turned into opposing them and threatened them and made them feel unsafe. But they continued to press on and continued to press on, but they eventually did stop. But they did resist some of the persecution, even though they did eventually succumb to it. So we see that the word of God had come to them, but it was not rooted in them as deeply as it needed to be to overcome the opposition that they came against. They overcame some, but they did not continue to, to keep it. So the Word of God was sown, just like we we're talking about on Sunday morning with the sower. The Word of God is sown, and it grew, but it apparently did not grow deep enough in them that they uh, with, withstood the opposition that came. Remember the quote that they had? Perhaps this is not the time to build the house of God. So they made us trip all the way on over here, only to finally come to the conclusion, since it was not easy and they faced so, many, so much opposition, perhaps this is not the time. And so they let the word of God go and they didn't build the temple until the Haggai came up, Zechariah came up, and they exhorted them to restart. So they heard the word from these two prophets, maybe even some others too, but these are the two we have recorded. And they began again. This one had seemed to root in them pretty quickly. And they resisted the opposition that came against them. They overcame distractions. They overcame obstacles. And they completed the temple. They got it completely done. Then they 
restored the worship. They had the worship going on. But then slowly over the 60 years, from the time that the temple is finished until the time that Ezra arrives on the scene, slowly over that time, they are eroded. And the word of God that was in them was choked out by the thorns and the thistles. Because people came and they said, don't you want to marry that woman? Don't you want to marry that man? Don't you? I know the word of God says you shouldn't do it. And maybe they resisted it at first. But at one point, they eventually caved in and they, they gave into it. No, we can't do that. They worship foreign gods. We can't bring that into, into our homes. We can't bring that into our, our lifestyles. But somewhere over that 60 years, and we don't know when it was, maybe it waited all the way up until 50 years. Maybe it waited all the way up until 55 years. We just don't know how, how long it was. It was enough time that some of the marriages had children, but not all of them did. So then the word comes and exhorts them. And Ezra gives them this message. They received that message. And they let it root in them enough that they were willing to make the trip in the rain and stand out in the rain to hear this, to make an appointment to come back in the rain and to be interviewed. And for 114, their families were going to be broken up. Their wives sent home. And if there was any children, they were going to be sent as well. And they agreed to it. you got to know that some things came up on the inside of them to try and unroot the word of God that was in them. But they did not allow, allow that to happen. So three times they responded. So here's our question. Why were these people so receptive to the word? So thinking over in the scripture, I turned over to James chapter 1, 19 through 22, and somehow I didn't leave that reference out of your outline. But if you want, you can write that in there. James chapter 1, 19 through 22 so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive the, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, those verses discuss our receiving the word and letting it root down on the inside of us. And then becoming doers of that word. So let's take a look at what this is. It's been about two years since we covered the book of James on a Wednesday night. But we'll just go over some of the highlights of this. Not uh, trying to get too in depth. He says, So then my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The first thing that he says here, That we need to, when we, when the Spirit of God speaks to us, when the Word of God is taught to us, when a prophet might get up and say something to us, as those are the three cases that they had saw. We need to be swift to hear. That means I am looking forward to hearing. I am swift to, alright, this is what they're saying. I don't know that I like this, but I am going to hear it. I'm going to hear what it is that we, we need to do how it is that we need to take care of this thing. And they're, they're quick to do so. And we saw that with the people. I don't know how quick they were to receive the word and leave Babylon. We're not giving any indication about that at all. But it seems the words that came from Haggai and the word when it was taught by Ezra, they responded very quickly. So it would seem to me that they probably also responded pretty quickly back in Babylon as well. So they were swift to hear. They didn't go away and say, well, we're not sure if we like this. We're not sure if we should take something like this from you. Uh, who are you, Haggai? Why are you exhorting us in this way? Uh, they didn't do that. They, they heard it. They checked with their spirits, probably. They checked on the inside of them. Is, does this feel like it's God? So they were swift to hear. They were slow to speak. They did not offer a, a rebuttal. They didn't get up there and say, but Ezra... We've been married now for five years. But Ezra, we got some kids. But Ezra, they, they, didn't, they weren't swift to speak. They heard 
And they immediately said, yes, we must do this. Hmm. Most times people want to be swift to speak and they want to make the excuses of what happened. Adam and Eve, they were swift to speak. They weren't hearing what Jesus was, was saying to them in the garden. They were just wanted to speak. So he says, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Boy, how many times has Israel gotten mad at the word of God that was spoken to them? Prophet comes in and says, thus says the Lord. They want to beat him up. They killed him. Jesus comes in, speaks the word of God. They want to beat him up. They want to kill him. The, the disciples come in. They preach the word. What do they want to do? Beat him up. They want to kill him. Paul comes in. They want to beat him up. Stop him from preaching. Authorities take him into the chambers. We're going to forbid you to preach in this name. This has been the history all along. We can get mad. We can get angry at the word of God. And we can be speaking. That's not right. That's not fair that you do this to me. Brother, sister, and so-and-so, they're doing it this way. Brothers, sisters, they did it like this. How come they did it? See, we're not being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. I'm flipping that over. I'm being quick to speak. I'm being quick to being upset. And I'm not hearing real fast. So this is the one thing that they did in this, in this book. One time in Israel's history where they were this way. There's a few times in the, under the ministry of like Josiah. It seemed like the people responded pretty quickly to him, but it wasn't rooted. As soon as somebody else came along and led them a different way, they went a different way. So, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Just because you get angry at something doesn't mean that's going to make you righteous, them righteous, or change the situation any. Our anger won't help. So he's just letting us know that. Just because you get upset does not mean that it's going to change anything. I think some people in the world, they think just because they make a lot of noise and get upset that it's going to change things. It's going to make something that was wrong right. So, you know, if you get upset and make enough noise, then having uh, boys go into girls' bathrooms is going to be okay because you get upset and you make noise. Uh, and you can name all kinds of situations. No! Just because you get upset and make noise does not make what you're doing righteous. And it doesn't help us out either. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and all overflow of wickedness. Is that not what the people of Israel in the book of Ezra are doing? When the prophet came and they were more focused on their houses than the house of God, they had to forsake that unrighteousness and they did. When Ezra came along and he pointed out, you are not supposed to take foreign women and have them be in your families. They repented. So therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. We made a note before that overflow of wickedness might also be translated remains of wickedness. So we have the filthiness that was there, the wickedness that was there, and that cup got full and spilled out a little bit. It's kind of like if you have a, a glass of milk you want a glass of milk and you put the glass on the counter and you pour in the milk but you pour it, in, pour it in too much and it began to overflow. And so what happens? There's stuff on the counter. So you may take the glass of milk away but there's still residual amount. That's kind of what the, the idea is here. That though you deal with the main part of the sin understand there's still some overflow and he's uh, telling them here lay aside all filling it all filthiness, and get any residual wickedness out of the way. Take care of it. And that's what they did. They didn't just repent and get the big glass out of the way. They took care of all the residual wickedness. And they said, well, we need to get rid of these women. If they're not willing to repent, if they're not willing to serve God, then these women need to go home. The children need to go home. So that's what they had done. I had a note on this that therefore lay aside. It means to lay aside like a garment. So you got to lay aside like a garment. You got to lay aside all filthiness and overflow. And it seems to, from the nature of these people who know Greek a whole lot better than I do, 
the way this is structured, the way this is stated, it seems that you need to lay aside the garment first before you can receive. So there's the, the laying aside of all the filthiness first before I can receive. I have to do some of that, that laying aside. You know, if you have some things in your hand and somebody wants you to receive something, you've got to first of all take care of the things that are in your hand and get them out of your hand. That's what that's a thing that you need to do. You know, Lumi, she's she's one of those. She she uh, she just likes to jump. And she, you may not be holding her at the time. I may not be holding her at the time. But if she's got herself up on a chair or something like that, and she sees me near, she's just gonna jump. And she just expects that you will catch her. So if you have things in your hand, you have to release those things before you're able to catch them. So generally, the things we have in our hand are less valuable than. <laughs> And Lumi, so they would get dropped. That's the idea. You have to let go of the, of the filthy wickedness in order to move on to the rest of the verse and receive with meekness the implanted word. A lot of times people are not receiving the word or not becoming good receptors because they are still hanging on to something. They're still hanging on to some of the wickedness. They're still hanging on to some of the things that God says, I need you to let go of that. I need you to separate yourself from that. I'm not willing to separate myself from that. So we're not willing to, to, get more, to get more. If God calls us to make a separation, such as Abraham. Abraham, get away from your land. Get away from your home. Get away from your family. I want you to come away from them. And I want you to go to a land that I'm leading you to. Well, he didn't quite do all that. Brought his whole family with him. Uh, but eventually, he does make the complete break and obey God the way that he does. And as soon as he does, God comes to him with another word and sends him more word for him to receive. We've got to let go of some of those things that God has told us. you got this issue over here. you got this thing going on over here. Let this go. Don't keep hanging on to this. Let it go. And once we let it go, we're able to receive that, that word. So again, it reads this way. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That word has to become more important to us than any of the wickedness, any of the things that are less than what God wants us to do. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, one more, one more word I wanted to get into, and that is the word meekness. The word meekness is uh, the Greek word Priotes, and you probably have heard me talk about priotes a few times. It is a very interesting word. It is a word in the Greek for which there is no equal in the English language. There is no word that you can use to translate priotes into English. It is a very unique word, and we just don't have anything that covers it. Vines puts it this way. And it's used in scripture in which it has a fuller, deeper significance than in the non-scriptural Greek writings. The, the secular writings that use praeotes uh, do not use this to the significance that the scriptures use it. It consists not in a person's outward behavior only, nor yet in his relations to his fellow man as little in his mere natural disposition. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul and the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. It goes on and says, The meaning of praeotes is not readily expressed in English, for the terms meekness, mildness, commonly used, suggest weakness. Whereas praeotes does nothing of the kind. So when praeotes may have that sense of a meek person, it does not carry anything about weakness. Nevertheless, it is diff- going on with minds. Nevertheless, it is difficult to find a rendering less open to objection than meekness. Gentleness has been suggested. There are sometimes this word is translated gentleness. But as Priotes describes a condition of mind and heart, and as gentleness is appropriate rather to actions, this word is no better than that used in both English versions. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. 
But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. That's from Vines. I went out there and took a look at what Rick Renner had to say on this one and pulled some things from that. This is a direct quote from him. Used to describe a person who is forbearing, patient, and slow to respond in anger. Or a strong-willed person who has learned to submit his will to a higher authority. Used to describe a person who is forbearing, patient, and slow to respond in anger. Or a strong-willed person who has learned to submit his will to a higher authority. Now, he goes on to elaborate on this, and I took some of this and kind of uh, paraphrased some of it and tried to reduce it down. It is not a weak person, but one whose strength keeps himself and his emotions under control. A priotes person is one who keeps himself and his emotions under the control of his spirit. They may possess a firm will and powerful character and even have strong opinions, but he has learned how to, in all aspects of his will and personality, under the control of his spirit. When confronted by the, an injurious situation, a meek person doesn't react with a rash or angry outburst. Instead, they respond with kindness, gentleness, even friendliness. This word is mostly understood by its uses in the Bible as non-biblical use is rare. But such rare occurrences describe a wild and fierce will being brought under control. So the idea here is a person who remains in control of themselves in the face of insults and injuries. The word was also used to describe medications that when administered would soothe or calm an angry mind. In the Greek, this word depicts a high and noble ideal to be aspired to in one's life. The very presence of a person like this in a situation can soothe those around who are in a rage or some degree of being out of control. Does that give you a better picture? A priotes? Very tough to translate that into English because, like I said, we have no word for it. So you have to convey the, the idea of the whole thing. So we see the returners. Let me give you some, some blanks that I wrote in there for you. If we are going to be people that are better receivers, better in our reception, we are going to be swift and be slow. We are going to be swift and be slow. We're going to be swift in the hearing and slow in the responding. Slow in anger, slow in speaking, swift in in hearing, slow in the responding. We're going to be removing and receiving. I'm going to be removing those things that are in the way that God has pinpointed through his word, through his prophets, through revelation to my spirit. I'm going to be removing those things. Well, if God has told me, that's I, I need to remove it. And... We need to start it right away. The people in the book of Ezra, as far as we can tell the first time, but certainly the second and the third time, as soon as the word came, they responded. And that's where we need to be. As Brother Hagin used to always tell us, instantly obey the voice of your spirit. i got to get myself trained up that I will instantly obey because it increases my reception. It increases my ability to receive more. So be removing and receiving. A receptive heart desires to remove what is contrary to God and will make the word feel welcome. We talked about being a feeling of welcome. hope you were thinking about that during some of your dinners and things that were going on. But a receptive heart desires to remove what is contrary to God and will make the word feel welcome. A receptive heart is quick to listen and willing to hear. But slow to speak, for the new man controls the tongue and the emotions. And finally, you're going to be doing all this while maintaining meekness, while maintaining priotes, while maintaining that, this, that description that we just read to you. 
The returnees were swift to listen to the messages. They were slow to get angry at what was asked of them. And they were removing the sins and receiving what the Word called them to do. As far as we can tell, they had a meek attitude, a preotis attitude towards this whole thing. We're not told too much about it, just that they always got it done. To a person, they all got it done. And they were to be commended for all that. So we see in the book of Ezra, we see some of the things that they did, they didn't quite measure up. And even in our own lives, we'll have times where we do things that don't quite measure up. But we serve the same God that they serve back here. And He sends correction. And when we respond to that correction, God responds. It is, of course, best that we don't miss God. That we do what God has asked us to do. And then we don't have to hit these times where we've got to be sending wives back and children back and, and breaking up families going through the sadness. Just do what God says to do. If God doesn't say to do it, and don't do it. It seems that the returnees here put the truth of James 1 to work without even knowing them. Because the truths of God's Word are not just coming about when someone put them to pen, but people put to pen the principles of God that have been at work all along. It's just that once James, once John... Once Peter, once Paul learned them and they wrote them down, that didn't create them. They were always in existence. But someone learned them and was able to teach them. That's what we want to look to. We want to learn more of who God is, but I've got to be receptive. So repentance may be a part of our Christian walk because God may be saying, all right, you're up to this point now. You need to get past this. This hasn't been an issue up till now, but now it's an issue. I need you to get past this. I need you to put this away. And we need to be quick to respond. And when we are, we'll see our own growth go and for us to increase the reception that we can receive the things of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the returnees in the book of Ezra and how they responded to the word of God how we can also respond. We see their weaknesses. We see their shortcomings. But we can overcome just as they overcome the shortcomings that we have. I thank you for it. We give you the praise and the glory for all that you're doing for us and all that you reveal to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.